What was the name that one where I just said like, yeah, that was pretty much the epitome of Ralph Mooney. What, what, what was that Whalen song you were playing? That was a Whalen song, right? No, Whalen did it later. Oh, that was a Win Stewart song. Is it Big Big Love or something? Yeah, yeah. I like that song. It's really good. I know, me too. But that to me is like that's that defines his kind of sound. It does. Like that's like for me, that's the lick. That's like, yeah, yeah, that that song. Yeah, you hear similar things, variations on that in like Rainy Day Woman and... Uh, oh, yeah, that's another one. Um, Good-Hearted Woman. There's a really cool part at the end of his one of his live albums from the 70s where he is introducing the band. Mm-hmm. Have you heard that track? Yeah, I think I know what album you're talking about. It's like it's super long too, right? The, the yeah, the, yeah. Well, the LP is is a reduced size, but yeah. there's available online on Spotify. It's it's really long, and the last track or the second last track, he's introducing the band and he's introducing Ralph Mooney, and everyone goes crazy because they love the steel. And yeah. then he's like, "Ralph, show him the foot that made you famous, or, <laughs> no, or show him the foot that." made Wynn Stewart famous and then made Merle Haggard famous and now is part of my band or something like that. I can't remember what he says, but essentially is uh, giving huge cred to Ralph and his foot for the pedal steel. You know what I'd love to, to have is like pure unedited, like the concerts that like the prison concerts, like Johnny Cash at like Folsom or, or um, uh, San Quentin, but like, the actual entire recording like because you hear about all the announcements and shit and it's like it'd be pretty cool do you know um you know how in Folsom Prison Blues I shot a man in was it in Reno Reno. just to just to watch him die and there's a yeah like kind of in the crowd yeah that didn't actually happen really yeah, this was a weird, cool story that I heard on CBC. There's this radio show called, you've probably heard of it, uh, Vinyl Tap mm-hmm. with, um, what's his name from Bachman Turner Omer- Overdrive? Randy Bachman? Randy Bachman. That's right. <laughs> How do I forget his <laughs> name's right? <laughs> or do you mean uh, Charles guy? Overdrive? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Charles Overdrive is talking... <laughs> Uh, Randy Bachman, it's it's a history of rock and roll kind of show. And I forget what the topic was that day, but he was talking about that. And he mentioned that that was something they cut into it. So it's a very famous part of a live recording in country music or rock or popular music history where he's at a prison talking about having killed someone just to watch them die. Yeah. And then hearing someone in the crowd, yeah. And you think like you're in a room full of murderers, but that didn't actually happen. It was spliced in in editing and post production. Hmm. They were little, little known fact. They were probably under pretty tight scrutiny for like they probably tried to really keep them calm, like not rile them up too much during Gun, those guns concerts. Pointed at everybody. <laughs> You'll shut your mouth if you know it's good for you. <laughs> Clapping only. <laughs> All right, so um, we're not talking about Johnny Cash or Waylon Jennings today. We are talking about the Bakersfield sound. Sean, what's your favorite thing about the Bakersfield sound? You know, I've been thinking about it a lot the last couple of days, and you know, I've decided that the Bakersfield sound was punk rock before punk rock knew what it was. Well put.
country, country music. So I think the Bakersfield sound is an extremely important movement in, in country music. Um, I mean, 60s and 70s, you, you've essentially got two different uh, regions of the country at war for like the hearts and minds of uh, country music fans. Uh, you know, Nashville's pumping out these string-laden arrangements, uh, heavily relying on background singers. It's creating this watered-down, you know, more palatable um, version of country music, which is what we discussed in our uh, previous episode, which was the Nashville sound. Um, then all of a sudden, you know, not really all of a sudden, but in stark contrast to this, you've got this harder-edged, like super tough honky-tonk music uh, coming out of the West Coast, um, primarily Bakersfield, which um, what we're talking about became known as the Bakersfield Sound. And, you know, I've always kind of big, been a big fan of like anti-big machine kind of type movements. And I, I think this is, you know, um, what made me gravitate towards, you know, things like punk rock when I was younger. But I also think it's why I'm such a huge fan of the Bakersfield Sound because, um, you know, whether it, uh, it wanted to or not, or whether it was the intention, I mean, the, Na the Bakersfield Sound was essentially rebelling against the big machine uh, Nashville. I mean, the artists involved with it. Uh, so I think that was kind of to explain my, my whole punk rock point is that they were really, you know, standing for something there. And I think we'll get into that um, a little bit more in detail later. And then, you know, you've got the flip side of it being, um, you know, the movement in, in Nashville still saying that it's not all this string-laden stuff. It's not all the Nashville sound. There's still hardcore honky-tonk music, traditional country music coming out of Nashville. Um, and there's still pop-oriented music, uh, country music coming uh, out of the West Coast. But I mean, that's, I think before we get too deep into uh, all of this, I think we do need to sort of circle back and take sort of a deep dive into the history of, you know, what created uh, the whole Bakersfield sound. So maybe we won't geek out too hard and do too deep of a dive, but a, a good, a, a good reference point backwards. I think we were talking a lot in the Nashville sound episode about the commercialism of it and that the Nashville sound was born out of the need to sell the want to sell more records. Um, hillbilly music had become a huge thing nationally. Um, a lot of cosmopolitan labels from, New York and wherever Chicago were signing up these acts and selling lots of records. But as those record sales slowed and pop and rock music was increasing, Nashville felt the pressure that they needed to jump on the bandwagon of this kind of sound and incorporate a lot of um, pop or rock sounds, particularly more pop in the early days, um, to, to sell records and, and make the first pop country or crossover hits. And this is where you started to see less pedal steel or when you saw pedal steel, it was less aggressive. It was more soft and, and slow and slidey and fiddles getting exchanged for string sections and choruses and choirs in the background, which was really the, uh, the, the flavor of the moment in the, in the, in the fifties and into the sixties. So that, that was the need and the impetus behind how the Nashville sound started to build. But over on the West Coast, this was also the time where electronic instruments, uh, ampl amplification, electric guitars were really starting to come in. So you didn't need to have a 10-piece band like a Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys with like a massive essentially country orchestra to fill the sound of a music hall, a dance hall. Now you could have 
three, four, five guys on a stage with their amplifiers cranked up in a shitty bar with a low ceiling with terrible sound that's loud and rowdy, everybody yelling, what do you do? You crank the treble, you crank everything up, you now have Fender Telecasters that are these amazing, twangy, edgy, really spanky, clean sound guitars, and you play the fuck out of them. And you get this aggressive, edgy, crisp, clean, badass, fresh sound that is essentially born out of necessity. To you, you know what the other good thing about those guitars was? And those what? rowdy honky-tonks. They were the only guitars that were durable enough to survive even the most violent bar fights. <laughs> was there not some reviews about that or something? I believe so. I read it somewhere. And that was a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you couldn't have a delicate like acoustic or something on a stage where literally beer bottles are being thrown around. Yeah. I mean, you could probably hit someone with your acoustic guitar as pro wrestling has taught us, but, you know... <laughs> Not really going to hurt or them. Or throw a pig on a stage, as <laughs> Lurleen Lumpkin and The Simpsons taught us. Boom. Simpsons reference. Done. Complete. <laughs> Our very own singing waitress, Lurleen Lumpkin. <laughs> Drink service will be on hold for five minutes. Um, so it was really born out of this necessity. And when you listen to this music, you, you, you can really hear it. By today's standards, it sounds a lot more tame and kind of cute and very 60s, 50s sounding. But if you compare it to the sound at the time, Bakersfield actually inspired a lot of rock and roll. And, and, and the edge that they were creating within a genre that was evolved from hillbilly music, quote unquote, to country music, quote unquote, and then what became known as the Bakersfield sound, because they were playing country music in California the way they needed to there. And and the particular microcosm of the Bakersfield area, California was big on country. It had pop country going on there. There was there was record labels based out there in um, in, in L.A., um, not far from Bakersfield. But Bakersfield was a big oil town, and so many of the Dust Bowl uh, immigrants, everybody who had to move away from the the Midwest plains, the from um, no, Northwest Texas. Oklahoma, Kansas, everywhere moved west and started working in these plains. So you have this whole um, essentially displaced um, diaspora of people that are very country, very into Western swing, Midwest country music. And these were hard. These were hard people, like real everyday hard from hard people to everyday people to everything that were mixed in there. And I don't think California had seen a lot of this. It was, you know, for all intents and purposes, like these people were were immigrants into their into their state, and uh, but yeah, they were a hard scrabble refugees, and uh, I think the sound reflects it. Yeah, well, and also because um, when your establishments, your bars in these towns after hard days of working in the oil fields and you're just like drinking hard, drinking your paycheck away and you have these what became legendary honky-tonks, which we would probably think are like badass shitholes if they existed now with like chicken wire up in front of the stage, low ceilings, like places we'd be hanging out in. Pretty much. <laughs> but uh, actually, I, you could open one of these places like side of the highway and it'd be such a hipster joint. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. That's who would go there now. The, the irony of it. Um, 
Like that uh, karaoke bar we went to in uh, in Nashville. <laughs> the karaoke bar. Uh, San- oh, Santa's? Oh, Santa's Pub? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, iron- yeah, ironically, the, the least honky-tonk place we went. Um, yeah, so the sound isn't great in these places. They're, they're not an amphitheater or a, a music venue by any sense. It's a low-ceiling, smoky bar with a stage on the end of it where four guys plug in and have to crank the treble. Bass isn't going to travel anywhere in that kind of room. Crank the treble crank it up loud and go. And that essentially is what the Bakersfield sound built out of all of those little pieces starting to come together. It's more complicated than that, but that's the, the rough idea. Well, and it was, you know, I I like this side of it is that it was such a, like it was such a tight community. Um, although, you know, it was the rough and rowdy honky tonks, but as the, the community developed, um, the people that, that um, came there, um, they were, they became a very tight community as it happens when people immigrate to a place where um, they don't know anybody, like they have to band together, right? And I, I think it's a big part, it reflects on the scene because as as a music scene as well, like the artist community was very uh, close-knit as well. So I think the two things uh, kind of reflect each other. And like there was some definite prejudice directed at the Okies, as, as the longtime residents called them. Um, and it, it's it's really cool how this scene um, sort of came about. Yeah, and, and so musically speaking, I think what most people point towards as being the beginning of, of all of this sound and also someone who hugely influenced rock music uh, would be the Maddox Brothers and Rose. The most colorful hillbilly band in America. So everything you know about um, like the, what became nudie suits and very colorful, crazy country western attire, pretty much the first people to put that idea like aggressively on the map was the Maddox Brothers and Rose. And they were uh, from Alabama, and they got to... I, California in I think the earlier mid 30s um, ahead, just ahead of a lot of the Dust Bowl uh, immigrants and they they started playing music and this their style if you if you haven't listened to them before because you, you don't hear them very much on country radio anymore or even like the the oldie shows on the on the weekends but they're they're great and they're very much quote unquote hillbilly music. I've read some quotes from uh, Rose that said they didn't get called country music until at least the fifties. They were they always thought of themselves and were always called and sold themselves as hillbilly music. And they were they were well ahead of their time because they they had like risque lyrics for the time and then also very aggressive style of, of of country music just listen to songs like george's playhouse boogie um sally let your bangs down and then like even something like ugly and slouchy uh the, these the, these guys pioneered even, even which brother played bass do you remember um it wasn't it wasn't don it was uh i don't remember the one's name um, Regard, re- regardless, yeah. he he pioneered like a certain slap style of bass that like so many people later picked up on. And so, do you know where? <laughs> it's because 
he didn't really know how to play the bass. Yeah. He was just playing the kind of playing the rhythm. And it's it's crazy that that's like like rockabilly was born out of that. Yeah. Like this band, Maddox Brothers and Rose, is so important, so influential. Can't like, understate that enough. And, and and like and not just for country music. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Like, how many other bands could you say, like you could arguably say country music, um, rock and roll music, rockabilly. Like I heard Chuck Berry, and I, I either read this or heard this in an interview somewhere. Chuck Berry saw these guys and was inspired in a certain like before he was a big deal. And you can draw back a lot of his style and influence to the Maddox Brothers and Rose. It almost like when I, when I heard that, it almost ironically reminded me of um, Back to the Future. You know, <laughs> yeah, when, yeah, yeah. Like Marty <laughs> is playing the guitar, yeah. and then he's <laughs> on the stage. He's like. <laughs> It's your brother, Marvin. <laughs> Marvin Barry? <laughs> you know that new sound you're looking for? Listen to this. It's almost like a real-life version of that, where yeah. Chuck Berry is listening to that, and it's that sound he's looking for. Not that he at all, I'm not at all insinuating he poached their sound or anything, but taking inspiration from the aggressiveness, because I think that was part of Chuck Berry's thing that like really took the world by storm, was like, how intensely and aggressively he played the guitar. And there the, there was elements of like Bakersfield kind of sound in his guitar playing that, uh, well, just that. Well, and, and you listen, I, I find like Maddox Brothers and Rose, I, I was, I've been listening to them uh, a lot the last couple of days. Like to me, it, it feels pretty timeless too. And I think that's probably because it was almost ahead of its time or just whatever. It was such its own sound. But uh yeah, I mean it, it's it's super entertaining. It's uh, super fun to listen to, and like you, you really, I encourage anybody. Like, we'll we'll obviously link to some tracks, and we'll do a playlist with obviously a, a bunch of them on it. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's still super relevant, and, and you hear all those elements of things. You're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, I, I hear it. You can't you can't not hear it. Um, I actually, and I. I um, Borderline forgot about this. I was telling you about this the other day, but I saw Don Maddox in 2011 mm. at a festival in Nashville. And uh, he was 92 years old at the time. He was in Nashville because he was uh, performing on the Grand Old Opry. And the last time he had performed on the Grand Old Opry would have been like when Maddox Brothers and Rose were were a thing. And, uh, you know, he went, I think... He when did be, they disband? Because a couple brothers died pretty early on, like in the 60s. Yeah, well, I, I think they they sort of... Or one brother died. Yeah, I, I know they... Could have done more research on this. They kind of... Well, I, I did a bunch. I just don't have it all in front of me. But they, they split. Uh, Rose... There was some infighting. Rose wanted to go out on her own. And so she kind of left the band. And then... The rest of them were uh, really didn't have anything else to do. Um, Don Maddox became a rancher, like for the rest of his life. He was a successful rancher, and uh, it sounds like something I would do. Yeah, I mean, band's not working out. Fuck it. Yeah, you know, buy a ranch. Yeah, and just why not? Right. Peace. <laughs> I feel like you might still do that. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Fuck this podcast. This isn't working out. I'm whoa, gonna whoa, buy whoa, a whoa. ranch. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do the podcast from your ranch. <laughs> I'll be a ranch hand. Win win. <laughs> Um, but yeah, along, he, little Sean, he did, a <laughs> he did Don Maddox. So, and he was ecstatic over this whole thing. He, he, he performed at, at this Muddy Roots music festival in front of like, you know, a, a bunch of like punk rock looking kids. And you, you could hear a pin drop when he performed and 
he was out talking to everybody, talking to other artists. He, you could just tell at 92 years old, he hadn't been in the spotlight for so long. And it's like he didn't realize that there was a resurgence of interest in his music. And it was just amazing to see that. And someone at his age that had been so influential, he had no idea he was so influential, like legitimately had no idea. And then he did this, uh, he had got a standing ovation at the Grand Ole Opry. And then, yeah, he did an interview, which I was reading with uh, Saving Country Music. Um, cool interview, I'll, I'll link it. And uh, some funny quotes, he's said, uh, uh, he was born in 1922, he said there were two disasters uh, that year, uh, Pearl Harbor and I was born. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, he talks about the slap bass thing, saying how, you know, he didn't even know how to how to play bass, it's just how, not not him, but his brother, I guess. And uh, that's sort of what created that, that whole sound. Um you know, there that same year, and the reason why he was there was uh, the Country Music Hall of Fame was opening up um, an exhibit on the Bakersfield sound, and so they had him out there as part of it. And Who knew Rick James had him to thank for the slap bass, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Merle Haggard said of that that opening, he said, if, if you don't have Maddox Brothers as part of this exhibit, then you might as well not have it at all. And apparently, during that time frame when Country Music Hall of Fame was opening up that exhibit, they were just that sentiment was being echoed by every artist that was involved. About the Maddox Brothers? Yeah. yeah. Like Dwight Yoakam narrated the whole thing. And um, all every artist was just saying like, yeah, yeah, this you have to have them here. You, or just don't do it at all if you're not going to go down that road. And uh, yeah, I even dug up a funny story about... Um, it, it sort was sort of rumored that like Elvis opened for them, but it was more that they were just playing a show in Texas um, and Elvis uh, was there. <laughs> and... Uh, so they had all their fancy outfits. And, was this pre-Big Elvis? Oh, big time. Like okay. He was just coming onto the scene, and it was just him, and he had like two other uh, guys playing with him, and they were street clothes. And uh, so I, I guess uh, this, as the story goes, and this is Don Maddox telling it, uh, and this is from that Saving Country Music interview, um, it was pretty hot in Beaumont at the time, so we had taken off our fancy jackets and hung them up backstage. And when we get off stage and went uh, went back there to get our jackets, Elvis had on one of our fancy jackets and was parading around backstage. And uh, when Mama, which I guess their their mother actually toured around with them and sort of kept them all in line. Hmm. So he says, when Mama saw Elvis wearing her jacket, she made him take it off. And then Elvis muttered, one of these days, I'm going to get me a fancy outfit like this. Huh. <laughs> I like these quotes you keep finding. Yeah, there's a lot of good ones out there. <laughs> A lot of funny stories. I mean, there's tons of humor I find uh, sort of interlaced into the... I mean, country music's always been a... Not a funny genre, but it's like there's been a lot of humor. I think a lot of artists had a good sense of humor in the genre. Uh, maybe because they take themselves less seriously than a lot of other genres. Yeah, that's for sure. And I mean, it's bred out of... We, we talked about this, I, I guess, um, prior, but all those sorts of like the TV programs and the radio programs and, and things like that, they were all there was a lot of humor interjected yeah. in there. And I mean, there used to even be in every band, like someone had to be the designated comedian. Someone had to tell those jokes. It was either the bass player or like the, the harmonica player or whatever. But yeah, it was, it was pretty cool stuff. But they did really set the tone and set the stage, the Maddox brothers and Rose for um, what the Bakersfield sound would become. Yeah. And so I guess in terms of, th there was a couple other artists that, kind of started to bridge that gap in between. But when you look at w where the beginning of the Bakersfield sound is, I think most people point towards Wynn Stewart as being the beginning of it. 
in the in the fifties. Um, when Stewart had a number of top people playing his band, did did Buck Owens play in his band? Merle Haggard for sure did. Did Buck yeah. Owens? Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. So a lot of the guys who became the the long term. I, I think probably biggest fl- flag bearers of the uh, Bakersfield sound were in the band of the guy who is kind of seen to have officially started it or where you can pinpoint the Bakersfield sound really starting. Um, it's not only for him or his voice, you know, to me, like I don't even just, I, I just don't love Wynn Stewart's music all that much, like vocally and everything, his songs to me, then I get it's sacrilege to a lot of people and I'm not knocking him at all. I understand how important he is and just personal preference. Not a lot of his stuff on my playlist. It's more musically that I really dig his stuff. And that's where I start to analyze it a little more where you look at the tracks where it would have had, Buck Owens on it, or even more importantly, someone that I think is instrumental to having created, helped create the Bakersfield sound is pedal steel player, Ralph Mooney. Um, he is probably most famous for having been, uh, Waylon Jennings pedal steel player through the majority of his career, at least through the outlaw years and through into the eighties. But he Ralph Mooney always considered himself Wynn Stewart's pedal steel player, even well past Wynn Stewart was cool past his heyday. He, he started with Wynn Stewart on pedal steel and he honed his own sound and style there. And we can talk about that a little bit more, uh, a little later on, but then moved that into Merle Haggard and had Merle Haggard's style or helped hone Merle Haggard style and then took all of that and brought it to Waylon Jennings. And by that point is really in his heyday and kind of pedal to the metal aggressive Ralph Mooney style. And that's something that I think once you know the sound and you hear it, it's so intrinsic to the Bakersfield sound, just like the Telecaster chicken picking twangy slidey sound is. And I think a lot of that was pioneered by a a number of West Coast guys. Um, Primarily, for me, I'd say Roy Nichols would be one of the most important guys in the Bakersfield sound. Started with the Maddox Brothers and Rose, played for Lefty Frizzell, was in Wynn Stewart's band. And when Merle Haggard was also in Wynn Stewart's band, that's when uh, he met Roy Nichols. And when Merle started his own band, he brought him on as his guitar player. So a lot of that, um, I don't know how to describe it without without playing something and we can't play anything on the air, but that kind of quick bend up on the guitar with a couple muted strokes and then a bend down that, that you hear in a lot of Merle Haggard songs on the lead guitar. That is a, a, that's a Roy Nichols lick. And I think not only did it define a Merle Haggard sound, but it's one of the defining kind of licks of the Bakersfield sound. So a, a lot of these guys and Don Rich, I can't, I can't, you, you can't talk about musically Telecaster guitar Bakersfield without Don Rich. He, he, he might be the most important if, if not Roy, Roy Nichols or Don Rich and, and Don Rich was the right hand man of Buck Owens who Buck Owens would not have happened to the degree that he did as importantly, if Don Rich hadn't been there for those harmonies and that guitar playing, 
I don't know. I'm kind of ranting now, but well, what, what I, do you I think, think? It, it's it's a bit of a web, like we discussed um, in in the last uh, episode when we were talking about natural sound. But it's you know, there's other like you can circle back, there, and there's so it's funny because there's so many people that you read quotes about, and it's like they were you know the Godfather of this, or or they started this, and it's like there was another guy, Bill Woods, like that's heavily credited with almost being the the creator of the sound and he was a radio dj he owned record labels and he was a band leader at a place called the blackboard cafe which was kind of the main honky tonk where everybody kind of congregated you're right and i forgot about him bill woods and the orange blossom playboys yeah all of these guys had been in his band at one time or another yeah exactly he was the house band yeah at the blackboard the forever the, yeah and the yeah I, had, you know, uh, I retract my statement about Wynn Stewart, Bill Woods, and the Orange Blossom Playboys would be the place to point that. The only thing there is that they didn't make a ton of music that was out for singles. They were more of a house band, honky-tonk party place that was almost a breeding ground for musicians. It's where they cut their teeth. Yeah, exactly. Because As opposed to people like, who were actually putting out tons of singles and records and... Which I, I would argue in this scene, um, it, it was almost as important because... More important in this scene. Without session players, you know, these guys played and recorded with their bands. So it's like... Yep. Um, but yeah, uh, he was he settled in Bakersfield in the 50s, like in 1950. And 14 years, um, he, his group was the house band at that Blackboard yeah. uh, nightclub. Um, he was the band leader. Uh, Buck Owens played with them. Um, he's the one who kind of encouraged him to start singing. Uh, he brought in Merle Haggard into the band. Uh, Red Simpson was another one of his protégés. And, uh, yeah, he had the live radio shows. He was a disc jockey. So, I mean, though, back then, those kind of positions were super important. Because if you want to, if you like this, and I don't know if you listen to this other podcast, but huge plug for Chris Shiflett's Walking the Floor. Um, it's, it's. I think it's evolved a little beyond the original point of it, which it, it's still amazing. That's that's not a dig whatsoever. But he had started this podcast kind of exploring the history of the Bakersfield sound and people who carry it on. He had an interview with Merle Haggard. He's interviewed Red Simpson, a whole bunch of other people on there and people who have carried on that sound and people who were around during that time or like the... Was it the grandson of Billy Mize, and like all, all kinds of all kinds of people, and people with stories about what it was like at the Blackboard, because like th this place that was just such a cultural hotspot that nobody would have known it at the time, but it just ended up being like, like what's the what's the disco club in New York in the seventies, like the fifty four Studio fifty four Studio fifty four, like yeah. it, it, it would have been what what that was to disco. Except with chicken wire and people probably getting smashed in the face with Total, Well, that, that was like <laughs> cocaine, bowls of cocaine. Oh, I'm everything. sure there was a lot of cocaine involved in the Bakersfield scene as well. <laughs> they were Maybe. picking pretty fast. <laughs> Maybe. I feel like that might have been a little bit early for that, but <laughs> might have. it was heavily, heavily alcohol. Wow, you, just, you soaked. brushed your teeth with cocaine back then. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It was a normal ingredient in everything. <laughs> It just didn't come in the snort form yet. <laughs> That's right. You got a headache? Take yeah. some cocaine. Oh, you hurt your elbow? Take some cocaine. It's good for what ails you. <laughs> oh, what else? Yeah, um, what were we talking about? We were talking about 
uh, Bill Woods. Oh, I had a funny, not really a funny fact, but an interesting fact about him. He was a part-time stock car racer, and he got into a couple of pretty bad accidents in the 60s, um, which he never fully recovered from. But w- this is a cool thing, is he toured with Merle Haggard for a while as a piano player. After Merle Haggard became a thing. Yeah. Interesting. So kind of circled turn, back. Turn of, yeah, turns of, turn of the tables. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But I guess that's sort of, you know, paying someone back for bringing you into the scene. and um, Yeah, totally. Um, all right. So where do you want to go from here? What, what what's what's next? Should we talk about the production or should we talk more about the the music? I think it? maybe do you want to get in since we kind of just talked about both of them is maybe talk about Merle Haggard and Buck Owens because I mean although they weren't the start of it, they definitely I think the most were the famous. two the most famous and yep. the two that really solidified this this sound. Yeah, and it's 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 hard to say who was more important in the long run. Um, there's good arguments for both sides, but Buck Owens was before Merle and Merle was in Buck Owens band. Actually, little known fact. Oh no, it's not so little known because (laughs) I think I already said it in an earlier podcast, but Merle named the Buckaroos. So Buck Owens band was, uh, Buck Owens and the Buckaroos. And while Merle was in the band and I forget what their original name was as the backup band, Merle suggested, hey, what about the buckaroos? And it was a good idea, and it stuck. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. I I, I kind of think Buck Owens was, and I, I think you do too, judging by the way you said that, but I, I think he was a little bit more pivotal in this. And I, I think it had to do a little bit with, um, you know, he had, Buck Owens had a pretty shrewd kind of financial sense about him too. He was a serious businessman. He really was. And he, he died built. being worth over three hundred million. I read really, but I mean, the cool thing about him is, is like, it could be wrong. The internet tells me all kinds of things. But yeah, it does. But <laughs> he he wasn't like he was a you know he a greedy like millionaire. He built this scene like and built this support network. Uh, he owned radio stations, booking agencies, song publishing studios. Uh, nightclubs. He owned the Crystal Palace, which is one of the most he was famous. He for like thirty years. Yeah, twenty years. I don't know what. A long time. And it's one of these artists we've talked about it in in other episodes. Um, one of these artists that just helped everybody. He was like so instrumental in you know building the scene like that. And I think it's I I love that so much when you see an artist that's just doing so much for the genre and for the scene. And doing things like that, that's pretty amazing at that time to parlay sort of a music career into such a uh, financial sort of, you know, dynasty, I guess. And what he did for, for that whole scene is, is pretty amazing. I think uh, I, did, I saw this exhibit at Country Music Hall of Fame and it was there. And I want to say maybe it wasn't Buck Owens, but there was a, a really, really cool car there. Um, did Wynn Stewart have like a famous car? No, that's, you're thinking about Webb Pierce with all yeah, the, yeah. with all the silver dollars. Yeah, on yeah. It and the, yeah, that's Webb Pierce. Yeah, it was pretty badass. That should have went in our Nashville sound. Yeah, <laughs> <episode>. I guess. <laughs> I guess I was mixing it up, but I did see this Bakersfield uh, exhibit. And it was it was pretty cool. Dwight Yoakam was narrating the whole thing. Was that this last time when we were there? No, it was like 2011. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, because the, the car is still there. It's a permanent piece. I was reading one, and I think this is 
worthwhile saying in how we just talked about how, how wealthy he became and, and how uh, financially sound he was. Um, there was a, a pivotal moment they talked about um, in Buck Owen's life when he had to share uh, one toothbrush with his brothers and sisters. Um, and he felt a lot of shame from, uh, you know, this poverty and it gave him sort of this determination that he just needed to succeed and I guess not go back to sharing a toothbrush with your, your siblings. Life and goals. Yeah, life goals. Set the bar low. Hashtag life goals. <laughs> but yeah, he really fine-tuned that Bakersfield sound um, from all the sort of styles that he, he came up playing. And so if, if anybody still doesn't really know what we're talking about or if you need a good example of this... I don't know if you have your own, but for me, maybe my favorite song from Buck Owens, particularly for the Bakersfield sound and specifically for the guitar playing of it, I don't think there's any pedal steel in it. And we can talk about that and Ralph Mooney's influence in a different way, but Open Up Your Heart by Buck Owens, that intro between and like trading off the guitars throughout this the the song between Don Rich and himself that that's it just like sharp twangy it's just like slapping just like so clean and edgy and you can just imagine how that was born out of needing to be louder than a crowd amplifying cranking it up uh, it's that that to me that's a perfect example of what at least guitar-wise and vocally, the Baker's, Bakersfield sound was about. I really love that. Um, I've got a tiger by the tail. Awesome. Like we, we can go on and on with all our favorite songs of Buck Owens, like Sam's Place, huge one for me. And um, Street, Act Naturally. Streets of Baker, Bakersfield. Yeah, absolutely. And also uh, Together Again in a slow context. And that's, that's not even, that, that's a pedal steel song. And that's not even Ralph Mooney. That was Tom Brumley who came in after Ralph Mooney and was, I don't know, hugely influential as well, but in a bit of a different way in, in more of a, I don't know, aggressively smooth in a way. Like he, it, it's, it was not at all Nashville style playing or Nashville sound, but he, had less of like a pop and a snap and aggressive. Like Ralph Mooney really described his pedal steel playing as attacking the strings. And that's something that didn't really happen before or wasn't happening in Nashville for, for those who don't know. And I've talked about pedal steel before on this show and I will continue to talk about it at various points because <laughs> it's all I know. <laughs> but with one hand, you're holding a bar that you're sliding with. In the other hand, you have finger picks on these 10 strings and you're, you're picking the strings and sliding along. And so, so often if you're doing like a long, slow, slidey, smooth song, you're, you're picking some strings and then your left hand is doing all the work sliding up and down the bar. And that was kind of the norm up until this point. It was what was used on steel guitar before pedals were invented that lifted and lowered the strings. And you get more of that Hawaiian sound that way, the, the more old school sound. But what Ralph really pioneered in terms of pedal steel playing, which I think is synonymous with the Bakersfield sound, is this like aggressive, quick picking of the strings while stomping on the pedals. So you hear like... 
one of the first places you hear this kind of thing is uh, Big Big Love, uh, Wynn Stewart's song that he later did with um, Waylon Jennings as well, which was a cover of Wynn Stewart's. And you, you can hear that quick, um, like build up, pick up, and like more aggressive picking. And if you compare that to something from, say, Lloyd Green, who we were talking about in the last episode, uh, Mr. Nashville Sound, that is so smooth and rounded edge and really soft. And then you have this almost party aggressive edge from Ralph Mooney. So all of these things combined are making this, this sound that was unique and revolutionary. I was, I jumped back just to fact check something for myself here, but, um, when Stewart, cause I was just checking, um, when they played together, when Wynn Stewart and uh, Buck Owens played together. And uh, it was in like uh, the, 60, the early 60s they played together. Um, but it was Wynn Stewart that was the one who really, really pushed Buck Owens on uh, Capitol Records, uh, on Ken Nelson, who I think we've talked about. Um, so, and, and multiple attempts, and they wouldn't sign him. He just kept, uh, Wynn Stewart just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And finally, they're like, fine, we'll sign him. And they signed Buck but Owens. But he, he was on a small record label for a while. He, he brought yeah. out, and, the, and then eventually they took him on, right? Yeah. I forget what that label was called. What was it called? It had a weird name. It was like 61 that uh, he s- put his first Capitol um, okay. record out. What, what was I mentioning there earlier? So, oh, Sam's Place, the song, was actually written by Red Simpson. And he was someone else who doesn't that often get associated classically with the Bakersfield sound, but very much California country and was something that was born out of the Bakersfield sound. When I think of Red Simpson, I think of uh, like trucker country. Yeah, it's uh, trucking, trucking songs. Exactly. I mean, it's a sub, you could almost call that a subgenre. 100%. Of, of uh, Bakersfield sound. And like everybody knows the song Highway Patrol and I, I don't know how many others that he would have written. They all have more or less the same theme. But that that was Red Simpson pioneering that style. Other guys came after him, like Dave Dudley is a huge one that personally I really like a lot of Dave Dudley songs. Um, but uh, I, I'd call it a subset of the Bakersfield sound or a subset of California country and probably one of his biggest hits as a number one uh, would have been having written Sam's Place that Buck Owens took to the top. I'd like to get into Red Simpson a little bit uh, after as well. We'll we'll talk Why about Haggard. Well, I, I kind of wanted to do it, like talk about Haggard a bit more. Okay. And then, but I there was another funny thing about um, Buck Owens. He uh, recorded a few singles, um, like prior to him becoming as famous as he was. But in like '56, he uh, recorded. This, I listened to this song. It is hilarious. It's a rockabilly single called Hot Dog. And yeah. it was released under the name Corky Jones because <laughs> yeah, he didn't want to be. He didn't yeah. want his credibility to suffer. And uh, then, yeah, a year after that, it's is just like George Jones. What was it like, Old Thumper Jones? Thumper Jones. Thumper yeah. Jones. That's right. Well, no, wait, was it Thumper Jones or was it Thumper something? Yeah, I think maybe it was yeah. Thumper Jones. Yeah, Old Thumper Jones. So, and this guy's Corky Jones. Was that like a play on that? I have no idea. You're just <laughs> blowing my mind right now with these associations. It's all. It's all connected, it's man. It's all coming together. It's a web. <laughs> It's, it's like, an enigma wrapped in the riddle. It's like that ancient aliens guy. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Uh, I'll, I'll send you the memes. There's there's many. 
There's plenty full memes on the ancient aliens guy. Well, we'll probably have to post that too. <laughs> if you're like me, if everybody's like me, we don't know what you're talking about. So we're <laughs> gonna we're gonna we're gonna need posts on this. Yeah, we'll we'll post it. But yeah, he was Buck Owens was such a big proponent proponent of you know the whole recording with your touring band, which I, I think again we, we touched on it a bit earlier, but that was such a, a big he, and he brought them all to Hey uh Hey uh <laughs> to Hee Haw. This, this podcast brought to you by <laughs> brought to you by We're mixing hey up our sponsorship that right. doesn't exist yet. Um the Hee show he was the host on and it, it was instrumental i don't know if d- depending on the listener age right now uh many people will remember hee-haw and some will have no idea and you can google it but this very important show that kind of poked fun at country lifestyle country music had a, a whole bunch of comedians on it Mini Pearl, others that would come on, but more importantly, the musical guest weekly or however often, however many shows they tape per year, um, what was the main one of the main drivers of country music or d- disseminators of country music culture to North North America and um, Buck Owens and his band led it all the time, and so the, I, I think he was already super famous with tons of number one hits as it was, which was revolutionary because the conventional thinking at the time is you had to be in Nashville to make number one hits. And here's these guys in California doing a distinctly different sound, almost in spite of the Nashville sound. And really turned it on its ear. It was amazing what they, what they did. Making number one hits and making platinum records, showing that something different can be done, which is partly what would have inspired or ha- had some impetus behind the outlaw movement, which we'll be talking about next time. So I think that's a nice little segue, Nashville sound to Bakersfield sound to outlaw movement. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense from a linear sp- perspective as well. I, I really like to think of um, like the corporate guys and well, I guess they weren't really corporate. Oh well, yeah, like the record label bigwigs in Nashville at the time just being appalled by this rowdy hillbilly like music coming out of the west coast and you know um it'd be funny too like at that time like how how the music it probably wasn't as fast as it is now like i don't mean tempo wise i mean like how it how it travels it'd be Mm -hmm. like as a single gets released you're probably not gonna there wasn't spotify back yeah exactly um but yeah I, i like to think of and and i, I well, imagine you, some of it was probably pretty tongue-in-cheek too like i don't think maybe it was but i don't think it was as much of a war as it's kind of made out to seem in the well they also like the amount of touring that they were doing then and from small town to small town it, it wouldn't have been the same dissemination as now but like w- one of my favorite songs that came out of uh the bakersfield sound was uh dim lights thing Thick Smoke and Loud Loud Music. And it was first, um, it was written by Joe Mathis and he put it out as well. His version to me, it, it, it isn't my favorite. It, it was, I think it has a dobro in it originally. It, it doesn't really encapsulate the Bakersfield sound, even though it was written about it. He was someone who was playing more in the Midwest around. And then he had played some gigs with, um, I don't know, was was he even in the in the 
played in a band with uh, Buck Owens. So I think he I wrote think, this song about about Blackboard uh, Cafe. No, I know he was, he was Not watching. Ca- yeah, the, yeah, the Blackboard. Yeah, but he. I don't think he was watching. I think he was there playing in the band with Buck Owens. I wonder. I, th- I think he had a stint with uh, Bill Woods, and he wa- he wasn't playing. The quote I have from him is that he was at the Blackboard Cafe in 1951, and he said it was and refer. This was in reference to uh, Bill Woods' band. It was the loudest band I ever heard. Yes, that's how it went. Yeah, and then the whole experience caused or not inspired him to write uh, the song "Dim Lights." Thick smoke. Yeah, when they were driving home, because it was him and his wife, Rosalie Mathis. Um, they 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 were writing it as I they, love that song, by the way. As they, oh, I do too. As they were driving home, because they'd never heard anything like it. And this is the perfect example of what Bakersfield sound is about: is these people who are country music professionals and artists from the Midwest, from in and around Ohio, um, Tennessee everywhere they come out to california they see bill woods and the orange blossom playboys playing which included buck owens at the time and they hear this crazy loud band in a like chicken wire fighting rowdy bar that is the most important place musically at the time in the I town and go to that bar right now oh, it doesn't exist everybody <laughs> wants to go there and and then they are just blown away by what's going on let's and open one how aggressive <laughs> call it the blackboard <laughs> and then they write a song called dim lights thick smoke and loud loud music if you if you don't know this song if you haven't heard it and you want some context check it out honestly i wouldn't Listen to the Joe Mathis version first if you really want the impact of this. And the Vern Goslin version isn't my favorite either. It's weird to say because Conway Twitty is very much the Nashville sound overall in, in his style. But one song that he does aggressively and edgy that could be Bakersfield that's heavy pedal steel driven and everything is this. For me, the best version of this is Conway Twitty's Dim Lights, Thick Smoke and Loud Loud Music. I like put that on and crank it up. We're going to put it on our playlist. I like the Dwight Yoakam version. You know what? I just, that's fair. I just don't like Dwight Yoakam across the board. We'll we'll put both on and everybody can vote. (laughs) (laughs) Ha ha. (laughs) Yes. These will be the first two songs on the playlist. Yeah. You can, you can vote for which one's best. Team Sean, (laughs) which would be Team (laughs) Yoakam. So you want to, uh, should we move on? Talk about uh, Merle Haggard a little bit? Yeah. Where do you want to start? Well, I think it's a good... There's a lot there. There is a lot there. Um, it's it, The way Merle Haggard came onto the scene, it, it's kind of like you know a stark contrast to, to Buck Owens, even though they were kind of side by side and two of the most sort of... The two of the biggest players in, in what we're talking about. But I mean, um, you know, Haggard, the whole appeal of being a musician appealed to him because, you know, he, he didn't have to... His quote would be, he didn't have to pick cotton or go to school. Um, but I guess he had a lot of problems with the law and things like that. And, uh, the cool story about Haggard always being is that he ended up in San Quentin and was there for the famous Johnny Cash, um, concert at San Quentin prison, which I think is what sort of pushed Haggard, um, into sort of cleaning up his ways and, uh, and, you know, moving into, um, being a serious musician, uh, which I think is is pretty cool because it's like Haggard and 
Buck Owens took very different paths, um, but they sort of ended up on the same the same road at, at one point. Mm-hmm. And uh, but there's some you know you can really draw some good parallels there between the two of them. And uh, there's uh, I was reading uh, what was this? There was um, I think it was some footage that came from Buck Owens' ex Bonnie Owens. Um, there was some documentary footage that I, I would love to see. It was uh, she was also Merle Haggard's ex. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. There's a because she was a musician. She was a musician backup as well, singer right? for while well, she was for both of them. First for Buck Owens, and then had his name. I and could be mistaken on this up, one, but I think Merle Haggard and Bonnie Owens might have an album out there as well. Oh, th- like she was on many. Of no, his but albums. I think it's like a duet album. It's very possible. I don't know it, but I think it's... I was listening to it the other day. But yeah, so this this uh, documentary footage was of Merle Haggard and Buck Owens working their way through um, like the writing of a song, and then there was uh, also some archival uh, footage from Haggard's return to visit uh, San Quentin when he came back there to play, which is pretty cool. You were in the prison and then you came back to play it, mm-hmm. which m- must have been kind of uh, I don't know. I'd go a little squirrely, I think, if I'd been in a prison and I went back to play. Yeah. <laughs> How's Cell Block D doing still? <laughs> you guys still drafty? <laughs> yeah, that sucks. Anyways, here's Chattahoochee. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Those prison concerts must have been a, a real hoot. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, Merle uh, came up in all of these bands. He was back up in in various senses for all of them. Wynn Stewart, Bill Woods, um, Buck Owens, everything. And then um, starts his own thing. And really, I don't know. I think the way that Buck Owens defined... Merle Haggard is more famous than Buck Owens, I think. Yeah, 100%. That can't really be argued. And, but... In terms of, I don't think that many people necessarily think of Merle Haggard specifically as the Bakersfield sound. Definitely his early things, but he evolved in a a, a slightly different way, Um, where as Buck Owens is that sound through and through and I I, I would think would be one of the more pioneers of it. Um, And Roy Nichols. Roy Nichols is such an important part of of Merle Haggard sound, uh, guitar wise. And, um, Ralph Mooney was such an important part, uh, steel guitar wise, but more music nerds really geek out on that. I think what really stands out for a lot of people for Merle is a lot of the message of his songs. And so much of it is around, uh, his experience in prison and you, you hear like branded man, life in prison, sing me back home, life in prison uh mama tried that's all about him going to jail um and a- another maybe one of his biggest songs Oki from Muskogee where everybody thinks it's this anthem for kind of right-wing anti-hippie uh, sentiment but really it was more of a satire of of, of the whole thing and he, 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 and later you also see in songs like one of my favorite songs from him is Rainbow Stew. And if you haven't listened to that, then, and li- hear that, it's almost entirely tongue in cheek all the way through. So th- there was a lot of nuance poetically and satirically to what Merle Haggard was, was doing. And I, I think that's one reason he was, he endured so much uh, through 
through, through the decades after that. Um, Ken Nelson is someone we touched on last uh, episode in the Nashville Sound, and he's someone who had a foot on in, in both sides. Uh, he, he had a hold on um, artists he was producing in Nashville, but also a lot of the big deals that became the Bakersfield Sound, right from Western swing-ish people like Hank Thompson to other Bakersfield acts like Gene Shepard. He was a part of Merle Haggard, um, definitely Buck Owens and Red Simpson as well. Somebody, he, he was producer at uh, Capitol Records in Hollywood in LA where all of these guys recorded at. Um, really, everybody thinks about like RCA Studio B and these places in Nashville as being the, the meccas of country music for that era, but really one of the other major hotspots and meccas would be the, the Capitol, Capitol Records building, that classic, iconic kind of circular building that looks almost like a stack of records in Hollywood. Um, yeah, and so... I have a funny one. You, you mentioned Red Simpson and you just mentioned Capitol Records, so I, I figured I'd just throw this in there. It's a kind of a funny story. When uh, the day he got... The day Red Simpson was signed to Capitol Records um, and he was asked... Uh, <clears throat> if he'd be interested in coming down and cutting uh, the trucking songs for the labels that he was that he was doing, um, it was a, a three three to four hour drive um, to the studio uh, from where Simpson was, and he said, "I'll be there in an hour and a half." <laughs> <laughs> he said, "When you get a deal, you take it." <laughs> but yeah, Red Simpson. I don't think I, I said I'd go into more detail on him, but really, I just wanted to sort of touch on how. Um, like he was such a songwriter. Like I didn't realize this until until I did a big, bigger deep dive on him. Is that you know how how much he wrote for you know Buck Owens and uh, and for Merle Haggard. There's there's a lot in there, and there was even like um, some stuff that the claim is that it was kind of co-written by Buck Owens and Red Simpson, but you know, Red Simpson kind of admitted like, you know, these songs were done. I, I, I gave them to him and I, I took 50% of the publishing rights and he's like, kind of like it is what it is. Yeah. Um, he seemed like a pretty jovial guy that just kind of had that sort of mm -hmm. attitude where I was just like, wow, it, yeah, it is what it is. But, uh, there's some big fights between Buck Owens and Merle Haggard on very similar grounds. Yeah. Yeah, of what was given to him or sold to him at too much of a discount or percentage of share, and yeah, but that could kind of be the Buck Owens is a shrewd was a shrewd businessman. Yeah, and I mean that could be sort of a byproduct of you know we talked about um, this scene, uh, the Bakersfield scene being such a close knit scene, and everybody was playing with everybody. Um, this could be a byproduct of that is that w when you're you're all jamming in the same bands you're you're playing at the same bars all that kind of stuff it's like inevitably there's some songs that are going to be probably written by a group or jammed on and then all of a sudden someone runs with it and then someone else the next well hey well, i i wrote that part or yeah well who wrote it really we all came up with it like i'm sure that created some infighting for sure yeah absolutely so for me, the, the same way that I earlier laid out what really encapsulated the Bakersfield sound from Buck Owens for me with Open Up Your Heart. Um, for Merle Haggard, two songs, lesser known songs. I didn't want to go to something that is very obvious. 
because uh, th- there's a lot of them, but two songs that really encapsulate the sound that he contributed to it, both with guitar, with Roy Nichols on guitar, and also Ralph Mooney on pedal steel would be uh, Drink Up and Be Somebody and Life in Prison. They're both on the same record uh, on I'm a Lonesome Fugitive, which was a great song, one of his most famous songs. But I'd say specifically for that edgy Bakersfield sound of like Telecasters, pedal steels, back and forth, those other two songs, Life in Prison and Drink Up and Be Somebody, are two gold tunes. Like they're, they're two tunes that really, I think, showcase... Merle Haggard's style and contribution and his band style and his player's style uh, to to the movement, to the sound, to the Bakersfield sound. And a, a couple other people that have played with him that really need huge credit is, and I, I've talked a lot about Roy Nichols and also Don Rich, who to me are maybe the two most important, but James Burton also so important. Uh, he, he, he more became famous as being Elvis's guitar player um, in, in future years, but he was also one of the guys who pretty much invented chicken picking as a style. And after Ralph Mooney left um, Merle Haggard to go play with um, Waylon Jennings, Norm Hamlet came in and he was amazing. So these are the all these guys we mentioned between the Telecaster players and the pedal steel players really um, helped the the main artists, the Merle Haggards and the Buck Owens, kind of craft what became the Bakersfield sound. I had been looking up a few artists uh, when we talked about doing this episode, and we've often. You know, in past episodes, we've done the Futures Females episode, things like that. And I was kind of looking. I'm like, well, okay, who were the women that were involved in this scene? And uh, one I found that's really cool, there's not a lot of recorded stuff out there, but uh, Kay Adams. And uh, she had an album called Little Pink Mac. And I only found like a handful of songs out there. I've never heard but, of her. Uh, yeah, really cool stuff. But I just, I, I, there's nothing. I'm, I'm going to have to try and do like some vinyl hunting uh, for her because there seems to be there was like two or three tracks on Gene Shepherd on Spotify, but uh, yeah, she had some some cool stuff out there. Oh well, for me, if you, I think the Bakersfield sound was definitely dominated by males, but the first person I think of in terms of Bakersfield for women is Gene Shepherd and like very famous song with Dear John Letter. Oh, the Furlan Husky. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And also uh, Slipping Away. Uh, so uh, a whole bunch more, but those are two that just immediately pop into my head for her. And Bonnie Owens, I'm pretty sure she recorded some stuff on her own as well too, but uh, was definitely more known for being uh, the wife of and backup singer to both <laughs> what Buck a, Owens and Merle Haggard. What a Haggard. mess in all. Like, I'm just reading about that song, uh, Dear John Letter. So we'll, we'll just listen to it. doesn't even, I had to read it three times. Um, okay. Talking about referring to that song, it was a keystone in building the Bakersfield legend. Written by Billy Barton, it was originally recorded by Fuzzy Owen and Bonnie oh, yeah. Owens <laughs> after her separation from Buck Owens while she was dating Fuzzy, but before her marriage to Merle Haggard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what an incestuous pool that was. Yeah, that's that's wild. 
I, I again, yeah, it was incestuous in every way. Like, yeah, yeah, sexually and musically. <laughs> oh, that's wild. Yeah. Uh, anything else you really want to touch on here? I don't know. You know, like it's another one of these ones where it was like the Nashville sound. I, I feel like we could have kept going for. We probably could have done two. I feel like we're on. getting close to an hour now, and yeah. there's so much more we can talk about. But I feel like we've kind of done a good glaze over. Yeah, I think so too. And you know, we can always come back to it at some point and and focus in on some of these points or some of these artists a little bit more. Time for uh, whiskey and maybe some dim lights, thick smoke, and loud, loud music. Let's go find us a honky tonk. Game on. Country, country music. <laughs> 